0: Welcome to the Great Tradition Podcast. My name is Ian, and I want to learn from the 2,000 years of Christians who came before us because I believe it helps us become more like God. This is the concluding episode in our series on the Trinity. If you've made it this far, we've covered quite a bit of ground. So far, we've spoken about what the Trinity is. We've learned about some of the historic Trinitarian heresies. We've covered the early history of Christian creeds. We've explored some of the debate around how the Trinity works according to the Eastern Church and the western church and if you've gotten through all of that you realize there's a lot of teaching and history and and debate and if you're anything like me all of this might feel a little bit like drinking from a fire hose there's just so much to be said and it can be tempting to ask the question okay so if if the conversation surrounding who god is is this complex how should i approach my study of him Today, we've got one last episode to wrap up this series on the Trinity, and I want to talk about that. To conclude, I want to talk to you about two theological concepts that, at least for me, have revolutionized the way that I think about God. And the reason that these two concepts are revolutionary are not only because they've changed how I view God, but also they've forced me to approach God with a different attitude. One of the temptations for Christians is to approach their study of God in the same way that they approach any other form of learning, and that's with an attitude of mastery. So when you earn a degree or when you learn a skill or when you become educated in politics or current events or whatever— What you've done by learning that thing is you've gained a certain level of mastery in a field, and that mastery gives you power, power to make money, power to influence others, power for whatever. At the very least, it gives you a level of mastery over the subject itself. However, there's a sense in which the study of God does the opposite, because unlike any of the other things you can study, it's impossible to gain mastery over God because God is the one who's the master. This works out practically as well because the more you know about God, the less you know. And the closer you get to God, the more you realize just how far you have left to go. The more you go spiritually and the more you become like God, the more you realize just how much you're not like Him. And in that sense, part of the journey of acquiring mastery of the subject of God is the realization that you will, in one sense, never be a master. Because of that, I want to leave you with two theological concepts that I believe work together to create this sense of unmastery in us, and those are the concepts of divine simplicity and apophatic theology. So let's dive in. First off, what is divine simplicity? Well, to put it simply, divine simplicity basically means that God is simple. That's it. He's he's not complex. Now, seven episodes in, by now, one of the things that we've seen is that there's a lot of complexity surrounding the doctrine of the Trinity, and we can also say that God is a mystery. And so when we say that God is simple, what we're not saying is that understanding God in all his depth is a simple thing. We're simply saying that God's essence is pure, it's undivided, it's one. We're saying that God's essence is simple. To quote Scott Swain, God's unity of simplicity means that God is one with himself, self-same and indivisible in his being and operations. God is not composed of parts. God is pure God and nothing but God is God. Divine simplicity teaches that God is undivided. There's no parts. There's no divisions within God. St. Thomas Aquinas goes into more detail to help us understand exactly what this means. And so I'll give you a few examples from his work. First off, uh, Thomas Aquinas says that this means that God is not a body. So you and I are composed of parts, right? We have a body, but we also have a soul. There's complexity within us. But God is simple. God is spirit. Second, this means that God cannot be divided or categorized by creatures. So we have different kinds of creatures that we categorize in different ways, right? We have genus, species, family, etc. But that doesn't apply to God because God isn't a creature. And so he doesn't have a classification. Uh, There are no other kinds of God that we can compare to God. Also, we could talk about how being human is different from the concept of humanity. I am a human, but I am not all of humanity. I do not define what it means to be human, but that's not the case with God. Our God doesn't fit into the concept of God. He can't be compared to the other pagan gods or the other religions or anything like that. He's just God. Or here's another way that we could look at it. God is his own existence. There is nothing that comes before God. There is nothing that caused God. And there's not even any concept or any idea that is before God or more foundational than God. Here's a third point that St. Thomas makes. This means that there are no accidents in God. Now, when I say there's no accidents in God, I'm not talking about how God doesn't make mistakes, although it's true, God doesn't make mistakes. What I mean here is that there is nothing in God that isn't essential to who he is. So for example, I'm half Syrian and half European, but that's not essential to my being. I could still exist even if I was born with a different ethnicity, however, I have the capacity to think, and I have a soul. Those things are essential to who I am. If I didn't have those things, if I didn't have a soul, if I didn't have the capacity to think, I wouldn't be. Well, in God, there is nothing accidental or optional. Everything that is in God is essential to who he is. To go back to uh, that Scott Swain quote, he says, God is pure God. Everything in him is absolutely essential to who he is. For example, the Bible says that God is love and the Bible says that God is light and the Bible says that God is good. Those things aren't optional to God. If he wasn't love or if he wasn't good, he necessarily wouldn't be God. And this actually leads into the final point made by Thomas that I want to talk about today. And that is this. This also means that God is not composite in any way. To say it another way, God doesn't have parts within himself. Matthew Barrett in his book, Simply Trinity, expresses this very well. He says, Scripture, for instance, does not merely say that God possesses love, but that he is love. God doesn't merely perform good acts, but he is good. In other words, God's attributes are not one thing and his essence another, but all that is in God is God. So when we talk about who God is and all of his different qualities, we have to understand that these attributes are not separate add-ons to him. And these attributes of God cannot be categorized separately from him. To use that line from Barrett, all that is in God is God. So that's divine simplicity. God's essence is pure. It's undivided. It's one. Now here's the next piece of that. Did you notice that for the most part, these affirmations that we just made about God's simplicity, it's just a bunch of negative stuff. Like God is not a body. God is not categorized like creatures. There are no accidents in God. God isn't composed of parts. He's not composite. All that we've done so far is just say a bunch of stuff that God isn't. And that's actually what apophatic theology is, and that's the other concept that we're talking about. Apophatic theology is sometimes also called negative theology or theology by negation. This is a concept that all branches of the church use, but it's foundational to Eastern Orthodoxy. Oftentimes, we approach God in positive ways. We want to definitively say what God is, but this concept teaches us that there are some ways in which we can only understand God by saying what he isn't. For example, we don't fully understand what it means for God to be infinite or eternal or immortal. We have no creaturely way of relating to those things simply because we aren't those things. All we know by saying these things is that God is not like us. God is not finite, and so he's infinite. He doesn't have a beginning or an end like we do, and so he's this other thing called eternal. God's not mortal like us, so he's immortal. All of these statements are just negative statements about God. So if you think back to all the history that we covered in this series on the Trinity, you'll also notice that much of it is a history of apophatic statements. So think about the Nicene Creed, for example. Arius taught that the son was ultimately a created creature, and the Nicene Creed responds by saying that the son is of the same substance as the father. They came to a positive affirmation because they were ultimately making a negative one. The son is not created, and he's not separate from God. Or think about the Chalcedonian definition. Nestorianism taught that there were two separate persons within Christ, and Monophysitism taught that there was effectively no human nature within the Christ, only a divine nature. Chalcedon responds by saying that Christ is one person who has two distinct natures, divine and human. Again, they came to that positive affirmation because they were ultimately making a negative one. They were saying, not Nestorianism, not Monophysitism. Or if you think back to the sampling of historic Christian creeds in episode one, you'll see the same thing. Part of what we do when we attempt to define the Trinity is we identify the heresies that got it wrong. God is not like what Martian described. The Trinity is not three different forms or modes. Jesus did not only appear to be human, but he actually existed. A lot of these positive statements we make about God are, in a sense, actually negations. So there is a sense in which we could say that God in his essence is a mystery. And many of the statements we make about him are really just basic boundary markers that we draw up. We know that God isn't like this or this or this, but beyond that, God is big and God is mysterious and God is beyond total human comprehension. There is this simple essence that is God and we can spend our entire lives studying him and there's always more to learn about him. And because of that, we will never grasp him in his entirety. I hope by now I've convinced you that we can never truly master the subject of God. We could spend our entire lives studying the Trinity, but we will never master the Trinity. At this point, the only thing left to ask is, what can we do with all of this information? If, if all of this is true, how can we pursue a God that we will never fully understand? How can we have a firm grasp of a God that we'll never fully grasp? Well, the answer to that is actually the same as the answer we gave in the first episode. Let's try to understand what the Trinity is by using simple language. And once we've got the simple language down, let's explore the depths of the Trinity from there. The language is simple. There is one God and he is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each of these three persons are distinct from one another, but there is only one God. Or again, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, there is but one God. Let's understand that and be dogmatic about that. But from that starting point, let's study and pursue God. Let's explore the mystery of God. Let's seek to know him as deeply as possible. God bless.